What the Funk is back. And I got the podcaster voice today. Just kidding. Justin Gauthier, <laughs> who actually came on uh, Tripping Over the Barrel many moons ago. And I believe I was the first guest on your Wicked Energy podcast as well, which was a lot of fun. You were. No, it's uh, to actually, the, to this day, I think it's like, it's still top three in terms of downloads, man. Like we, I came out of the gate hot with old Funkadelic and uh, it's definitely gone good ever since. But no, I appreciate you having me back on. It was, uh, again, it, it was a great experience coming on uh, Tripping the Barrel. Um, again, my heart goes out to, to the Loser family. But um, yeah, I'm happy to be back. We always have such good conversations and uh, no, it's, it's an honor to, to uh, get invited back to the show, man. So love it. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that, that you came back on. I listen to your podcast on occasion. People are like, Oh, you're a podcaster. You must listen to a ton of podcasts, dude. I, I barely even have time to listen to my own podcast, let alone others. <laughs> but you told me you're like, ours was great. Like you, you got to listen to this. So I really loved yours. I, I think we, we vibe really well. I think you're a great podcaster. You do great work for this industry and your career is super bright ahead of you. Um, Thank you, man. You're welcome. What we do on What the Funk, and our listeners know this at this point, we're not going to talk a ton about business. I want to know people's story. So yeah. I will ask you what I ask all my guests. Who is Justin Gauthier? Well, I'm a husband and a father first and foremost. I mean, that that is the, the pillar, the core, the anchor. Because um, without, without those two things... Um, you know, in place and and going well on a macro level, there's micro losses, just about everything, including your relationship with your wife and kids. But uh, I'm a father, I'm a businessman, I'm a podcaster, um, and I'm a connector and and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a people pleaser. I love, I love pleasing others and helping others, seeing other people win, um, makes me happier than anything in the world. And so, um, that's who I am, man. I'm a, you know, I'm a Canadian, uh, born to uh, a single mother, uh, grew up in an entrepreneurial family. My mom remarried when I was five. And uh, so I grew up grinding it out with my parents' business. I mean, I didn't, um, you know, I, even though I stayed up late in high school partying, I was I was expected to be up early in the morning, going to the shop, sweeping, nice. uh, sanding, cutting. Um, and so, yeah, I, I grew up in kind of a unique uh, environment from that perspective all of my friends, families, uh, they were, you know, lived either their corporate life or they were, you know, work for the, for a corporation or something like that. And so the reason I say that is it's funny growing up, I always was embarrassed to be part uh, the son to, of, uh, parents who had their own business. Hmm. I thought it was so much cooler to, to wear a suit and go to an office with, you know, with, with, with glass windows. And now it's the total opposite. Everyone wants to be a freaking entrepreneur. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the suits is often looked down upon, uh, everyone wants to fight the establishment, you know what I mean? And I'm speaking in generalities, obviously, but, um, anyway, that's who I am, man. Here I am. I'm, I'm my day to day is I'm a U.S. business strategist for an oil field service company. We provide drilling fluids, which involves, you mean, everything from sales, business development, working with all the different departments within our company. Um, and yeah, and I'm a podcaster too, which is always fun. And, uh, yeah, there's a few other things down the line, but at the end of the day, that's it in a nutshell, man. So th there's a lot of really good stuff there that I want to dive into. And I think, um, you know, you and I now play in a lot of the same circles. We're, we're both wearing digital Wildcatters hats right now. Yeah. Shout out Jake and Colin. I'm going to Fuse next week. Are you going to be there? So I'm, I'm going to try and make it. I was traveling. I was in OKC this week. 
I've got a big tender that I'm working on for next Friday. So I'm, I'm going to try and pop in. I just, my, my schedule next week's already piled up with some stuff. So anyway, I, I'd love to, I'm just not sure yet. And even if, so then if I do, I got to get tickets, but I, to be determined. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm in Denver, which you have some history here in Denver too, with the, the gem program Yeah, um, and, and Shut up. up here. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, our, our backgrounds are actually very different despite the fact that we swim in the same circles. I think I talked about this a little bit on your podcast. The only thing we really have in common is that we grew up and grew up in extremely cold areas. I was like Northern New Hampshire. You're yeah. a Canadian. Um, my parents were both teachers. So my mom mm. was an elementary school art teacher. My dad was a professor of psychology at Plymouth State University. So I didn't really get exposed to the business world at all. In fact, when I went to college, my plan was sort of like, I think I'm going to be like a history major and then be a lawyer. Like that was sort of the path. Yeah. I hadn't really seen a lot of other ways for people to be incredibly successful. Um, mm. And the idea of entrepreneurship was, was extremely foreign to me, uh, especially then. And it wasn't really until I got out in the the business world. The first job that I had was was selling tech um, mm. 20, 20 years ago and really started to see like, oh, okay, interesting. A lot of these people that are running these companies didn't even go to college or they didn't graduate from college, right? So my mindset started to shift with like, okay, so you can actually be successful not doing this in the traditional ways that I thought you had to do it when you were yeah. growing up with you, it was, it was quite different, right? You grew up in an entrepreneurial environment. So maybe for you, you thought, okay, this is always going to be an option and we'll see where everything plays out. Did you yeah. um, go to college? Did you sort of always work throughout high school? Like what, what's your career path sort of look like? Yeah. Uh, I mean, good question, right? So again, I, <clears throat> I worked from the time I was six, seven years old working for my parents um, it's the only thing I ever knew. And what I, what I knew was that like, I didn't, I didn't know really what I wanted to do, but I grew up playing sports. And so I wanted to be an athlete. Yeah. By the time grade 12 hit, I'd realized like, okay, I'm not going to make it to the league. So I might as well figure this out. And so, but I hated school. Like I just, I hated it. I had right. a hard time paying attention. Um, because of my personality and my charm, I was, I always did well enough to win the teachers yeah. over to give me good enough grades to pass. And although I put in the work, I was good at projects, but when it came to tests, I just completely like mm. barely scraped by mm. mainly because I hated reading and memorizing things. I just wasn't good at it. I had too many other priorities, like, um, like I said, sports and partying. So, <laughs> uh, so, so, which also held to some degree, get me through high school, but um, I didn't want to go to school because I, like, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I wasn't about to go to school and sit there learning things I didn't really give a crap about. Yeah. So after three years out working on a drilling rig, uh, I went, I, I realized, so I always wanted to figure out who was like the top dog on the drilling rig. And it was always this dude walking around with a, uh, with a white hard hat that represented the oil company. And so one time I asked, we were drilling for Petro Canada and I asked the gentleman's name who was walking around was his gloves were bright. His hard hat was white. I was like, man, like what, what do you do and how do I get there? And he basically said, man, you can either spend the next 15 years out on a rig or you can go back to school. And I said, well, what do I got to take? And he said, you can do <laughs> petroleum engineering. And I was like, yeah. all right. So that night when I 
or at some point when I got to internet, I started doing some research. And then I went and did my petroleum engineering technology degree at SAIT, which is in Calgary. And at the time, like I still, the, the, the North star was like, just make as much money as possible. And that seemed sure. to me like oil and gas makes much money. I said, I made more as a rig hand than I, then I made like three times as much as any of my friends did that who went back to school and got mm. some like whack ass job coming out of college. Um, so anyway, I was like, well, this seems to be the industry I need to stick with cause there's a ton of money in it. And so, yeah, I went, did that and then got out and it wasn't until a few years ago, I went back to school, which I always told myself, I'm never going back to school. Like I, I did actually really well in college, but it's cause I, there was purpose involved yeah. and it was partially my own money. I was living out on my own and it was like, I didn't have the parents parachute to like, you know, hold me together. It was like, I got to figure it out. So Anyway, I put my, screwed my head on tight and figured it out. And yeah, I mean, education was never something I thought I'd do good at, but even in grad school, I, 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 I did extremely well. I actually got the highest GPA of my cohort, which is like nice. absolutely mind boggling. Um, <laughs> but it goes to show you that hard work outworks or hard work outperforms talent any day of the week. Yeah, and if you have both, you can go even further. No, I, I think you, you said something there that, that I've reflected on a lot. So for me growing up, you know, my parents both have advanced degrees. Um, my dad, a PhD, my mom got her, uh, you know, uh, her graduate degree as a, uh, as a teacher. Um, and, and for me, it was always like, you're going to keep going to school. So I just didn't question it. And, and I think one of the bigger, not necessarily regrets, but um, insights that I took was I probably should have had a little bit more dose of the real world between mm. high school and college. Because what happened to me was I was a good athlete in high school. I was class president. I was captain of sports teams. I had good grades, like, like really yeah. kind of like a, a top dog, you know? And then the, the guardrail sort of came off when I got to college. Like, yeah, I was still doing sports, but then it's like, oh man, you know, I kind of got into partying a little bit more and boom, before I know it, I'm there at the end of my freshman year of college. My GPA is like 2.3. I'm on academic probation. My parents <laughs> are wondering what the hell's going on. We spent all this money for you to go to this elite school. What happened to little Jeremy? <laughs> yeah. What's, what's wrong with you? And, and I think I started to see people that took a, a year off in between and, and actually worked or traveled the world. And they had a yeah. different viewpoint and level of appreciation for the education they were getting, which I don't think I really got until like my junior year. Maybe I was like mature enough and I could kind of see like, okay, I see where this is all going. Um, but at that point, I'd already given up half of my education to sort of just going through the motions, uh, mm -hmm. which, which is too bad because I think my college experience may have been actually more focused on the education than the socializing and the partying. Um, <laughs> had I like actually had more of a dose of what things could be like if I didn't have that education. Right? right. So, so I think your story, it actually makes a ton of sense to me. You've done a lot of schooling as you were more mature and a little bit older, and you probably got the most out of it. And, you know, kudos to you on that. Cause I think once you take time away, it's harder to go back. It is. But honestly, like the silver lining around the pandemic was I had signed up to go back to school once before and then work got busy. And then all of a sudden it was like, ah, oh, screw it, you know, but man, during the pandemic, it was like, I can either sit here and like play on LinkedIn for 12 hours a day, or this thing that I've been wishing about for years, 
to go back to school, like I can actually make this happen because it doesn't sound like I'm going anywhere for any, anytime soon. So, man, honestly, I don't. If it wasn't for the pandemic, dude, I don't. I really quite certain that I wouldn't have went back, and mainly because I just don't know if I would have had the time nor the interest to sit there and reflect and be like, is this really what I want to do? Because I would have been distracted with the day to day and just hustling and bustling and and you know just kind of going on about my business. So, yeah, as the stars aligned there. Did you live in Denver for a little bit? Yeah, I lived in Denver in 2000, uh, from 2012 into 2013. So it was a little over a year. So not a long time, but that's where I broke out in sales, like like formal sales for the company I work for. Yeah. Still at the same company? I am. Yeah. Wow. And uh, I've been with them. Well, actually, I've been with the same company now since 2009, which is crazy because I'm such a like, well... Here's a testament to the company. I mean, they're they're ran by sales and operations people. So from the leadership side down, like we're ran and we know that we live and die by selling drilling fluids. Like yep. we don't we're we're not ran by finance folks. I mean, obviously we have a CFO and all the rest of it, but this the former CEO and the current CEO, they were mud salesmen mm. their entire careers and decided to go into business. And so um they've they, 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 we, we breed and an, a very entrepreneurial, uh, esque business. Like people mm. create value where they see fit. It's very merit based. Um, you know, there's egos and politics in any company, but I think we've done a good job of building a team of people that, that gets put aside for the most part. Um, yeah. And so, uh, it's, I would have never thought in my wildest dreams, I would have stuck with a company for this long, but I, again, they, they give me the freedom to create value where I see fit. And ultimately it's helped generate millions of dollars for them. So it's worked. That's really cool. And, and I've seen this across the board where you have, you know, technology led companies, you know, founders who are engineers, founders who are salespeople, founders who are finance guys. And that really does sort of permeate down throughout the organization. So I, I think that's worked really well for you. Um, since you are entrepreneurial and that's somewhat encouraged, I think it seems like within your organization, I actually yeah. attribute a lot of my entrepreneurial career, which I'm about three years into right now, of just saying, I'm going to go away from taking a W-2 and I'm going to start my own thing. Yeah. Um, the transition wasn't that difficult for me because being a salesperson, especially a sales rep, you really learn how to kind of manage your own business, right? Yeah. Whether that be a, a P&L or expenses or figuring out when and where to be to get business, um, ensuring that the organization is profitable. That just started to kind of become a part of the rest of my life. So yeah. and even just down to like expenses, right? Like I'd been using yeah. expense templates. I use a system called Harvest. I'd been using that for years. So then when it's time to like, you know, I talked to my tax accountant at the end of my first year, he's like, dude, I really hope you were keeping track of like all your receipts and all this stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, no, here, here's a report. And he's like, oh my God. And you, you like took pictures of every single receipt. I'm like, well, yeah, like I know how to do this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've been yeah. a sales guy forever. So yeah, some yeah. things sort of just because of my background in sales helped in terms of becoming an entrepreneur. There are some things that I've struggled with too. Like I'd never really created a real like, uh, like revenue forecast. Right. Like mm -hmm. what, what is this going to look like? 
to, to the line item, to the month, right, to the resource that is now allocated to that particular line item. Um, and so something like that was new to me. And I was fortunate to be around some people who do have MBAs that have finance backgrounds that sort of showed me how to do things like that. But in, mm-hmm. as far as like using a, a CRM and doing reporting to make your clients happy, tracking expenses was all very sort of natural for me. And I think you'll see too, if and when you ever decide to break out, um, that a lot of the things that you've already learned are very applicable to running your own business. Yeah, no, it's, it is. And I'm, I'm very blessed to have a, a beautiful rock star wife who is running her own business. And it's funny because <clears throat> she graduated high school right away, went into accounting, took account, you know, went and worked for CNRL, mm-hmm. did accounting, came, we came down to the U S she did more accounting. And so like, she was like, and, but she worked her ass off. She did well, but it wasn't until after having kids, she was like, I don't want to go back to the corporate world, which in, yeah. in my eyes, if I would have been, if I would have bet on her career, I'd have been like, you're going to be a, cause she liked consistency. She liked, you know, getting off and not having a phone call or an email till the next day. Cause she saw how I lived my career. And she was like, like, you know, like, do you ever put your phone down? Like this was back in the early days of ours. And I'm like, no, like we drill wells 24 seven. Like you right. don't turn the lights off and then we have to stop drilling wells. Like this shit goes on to all day, every day. And, you know, and then over time she was like, okay, she's just learned to accept it. And she acknowledges just like the demand. But I say all that to say is like, she's actually the one who decided to ditch the W2. Well, I mean, when we had kids, she did. And then she finally ended up wanting to start her own business. And now she's an entrepreneur and lives and dies by, you know, like her scorecard, not the company's. And so it's like, and she's responsible, like she's got a few rentals, she does multifamily. And so she has a real estate company. Um, And it's interesting because a lot of the stuff that I do in my career, that I've learned in my career, and even, you know, growing up in a family business, it's like, I can help her, even though I don't, I mean, I, I'm part owner in a business and I can say Wicked Energy is a business. I mean, sure. it's small revenue generating and, you know, there's expenses and stuff, but that's like at such a small scale, like my eight-year-old daughter can run Wicked Energy, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like it's not, it's not that difficult, but it's fascinating to see uh, my wife and what she's been able to do. And so, although I, I live in the corporate world, my better half is living the entrepreneurial life and it's like... She, she runs her own Airbnb and she get, got a call one night at like 10 o'clock because the, the people didn't have toilet paper. So she ran halfway across right. Houston to the fifth ward to go drop off toilet paper. And it's like, these people couldn't have went to CVS, which is right across the street and got some damn toilet paper, you know? So like, she's the one getting those midnight calls now and someone couldn't get in at like three in the morning. And so Airbnb called her and it was just like, like she's living it, you know what I mean? She's running P&L, she's running, you know, numbers and, you know, underwriting deals and like, so it's, I get a taste of it without yeah. being like directly involved. I, I'm like her biggest cheerleader basically. So. Yeah. And you get to see the fluctuations just like in, in oil and gas, right? Where we're so commodity price driven, you know, now you're in the, you know, the, the mortgage space and the rental space, right? In the, yeah, yeah. the housing market. So you're, you're very keen on trends um, yes. in part yeah, from, yeah. from what you see yourself on your day to day and initially what your wife sees. I yeah. have a, kind of a personal question for you. Um, Hell yeah. And somebody asked me this on a podcast earlier, which I thought was pretty cool. This was a younger guy. He's an entrepreneur. He's just all about his businesses. And his wife is pregnant. He's about to have his first kid. And I can tell that he's nervous about that. Just like I was nervous before I had my first kid. And like, how is this going to affect 
me and, and my business and sort of like my own personal, maybe even selfish desires for financial success or, or you yeah. know, business achievement. Um, and I have my own sort of views on that. But I'm curious, like what did what shifted for you um, when you had kids? Did you feel like it, it, your heart became more full? Do you feel like in some ways it created more challenges? Like you worked harder, you didn't have time to work as hard. Give me sort of your sense now that you got a couple of those little ones running around. What, yeah. what has having kids done for you as it relates to your your own professional life? I'll be honest. So like growing up an only child, I didn't have to worry about anyone else. It mm-hmm. was like, it was all about me, right? And so, and then, you know, having a wife, I had to really give up that. I, I had to become way more selfless. Like it was like her, t- like our time meant, together meant a lot. And so it wasn't always like, I could just do whatever I wanted when I wanted. I finally yeah. realized like, oh, it, like giving a heads up to her that I want to do something is probably, <laughs> is, is probably a good thing. And so, and then fast forward to having kids, I was like, holy shit. So it was, it was extremely difficult from the sense that like, I had to put others before myself and I, and yeah. I, and I did a great, I, I feel like I did a good job doing that or else I would probably wouldn't be married anymore. But it was like really thinking like in the macro is like, I'm probably not going to be able to work 12. Cause when I was working before we had kids, like I, I loved what I did and I, my hobbies were work. And yeah, I did like some things here and there, like on a daily basis. But like at the end of the day is like, I just loved working and doing mm-hmm. what I did. And so it was like, it was hard for me to really like, Oh, like I got to play with a baby that like, there's no ROI there <laughs> when I could be like focusing on, you know, building relationships with clients or traveling and doing this and that. So it was challenging for me at first. I really had to like find a greater purpose for who I was. And I really, it, I, I'll never forget is like, I got to a point where I realized that <clears throat> as a father and having kids, you have a great responsibility to raise good humans to impact the world. And I always wanted to like please others and, and do things for others. And I realized like, like if I look at a macro timeline, like um, they're only going to be wanting to hang out with me and do things with me for like less than 10% of my life. Like, or if that, whatever that percentage is fairly small. And so I just like took it upon myself. I was like, okay, like I really got to put in the time. And if that means my career growth slows down, that's totally okay. Such as long as I raise great human beings that can impact the world in a, in a great way, then like, that's what life's about. It's not, you know, how far I can make it, how much money I can make and how many titles I can acquire along the way. And it's like, and so I realized, okay, like I need to get off my high horse and realize that there's a greater purpose to life than the like monetary returns that you get from working your ass off while are still important to some, including myself. I love it, but it just made me realize there's more to life and just like chill the F out. Like work's going to be there the next day. And then it came down to like communicating with my wife. Cause you know, that was another thing is like really, you know, anyone who has kids knows that like having kids tests your marriage. And so I, I really put focus on trying to make sure that like she was good and really I had to work on listening. Like my listening skills are terrible because I hear one thing, it goes out the other and because my brain's thinking of something different. So there was a lot of stuff I had to work on and I still do. But I mean, that's a freaking long ass answer to a short question. But to sum it up, I would say I, it, it made me way 
more selfless. Yeah. I had to put others before myself and I had to not put work as a priority like all the time. And, and, and I never really chased balance. Cause I think when people talk about like, Oh, it's, you know, it's with a work life balance. And although I, I acknowledge that as a good idea, because at the end of the day, you can't just, if you have a family, you can't just work all the time. Cause ultimately it's going to, you're going to spiral out of control. You're going to have a shitty relationship with your wife and kids. And you're going to live in a really painful situation probably for a long time. Absolutely. But in the macro, I think it's important to look back and be like, was I there when I needed to be? Was I, did I, did I do the best I could given the circumstance? And like, there might be days where I only focus on work and I don't, I'm not really present. Maybe I'm traveling, but over the course of like, since the day they were born till now, have I spent good quality time with them? Have I done the things? Have I been attentive? Have I, you know, have I been a good parent, a good husband? Yeah. Like it seems like it has been. And so I'm like, okay, cool. But like, there's some days where like, you can't think every single day okay, I got to spend like X amount of hours doing this, X amount of hours doing that. Because reality is, especially in our business, it's not going to happen. So it's, 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 it's not beating yourself up too. That's another big one. It's like, don't be so hard on yourself because mm. you have time on your side, which most people would disagree with. But if you manage it accordingly, you do. So. Yeah, well, I appreciate the, the detailed answer because it's not a yes or no question. It re- requires some nuance. I, I think for me, I was kind of anxious about having kids and you know some of those anxieties come true because because kids are an expense and they require your attention they require your money they require your focus which will in turn take away uh, from other things that you have but i think with a little perspective you realize that's actually what really matters Um, because you know you a friend of mine who's actually canadian said this to me a little over a year ago i forget the context of the conversation but he said you know i think i was complaining about business or something he said jeremy like you're going to have a lot of jobs, but you're only going to have one life, right? So it's going to be really important for you to look Mm. at, are you happy in your day to day? Um, Because if your job is making you miserable, for example, like you could easily just find another job. You can't find a different life. You can't find a different kid. (laughs) Like these are, these are the things that are important to you. And I even remember it was particularly hard for me when, my, my first two daughters, I have two daughters and a son, my first two are about 21 months apart. So when they were like three and one and a half, it was really hard. Like we just bought our first house and we moved and I was working a big job and traveling a lot. And I remember thinking, how do you do this? Right? Like the immense yeah. amount of stress, like how do I balance all of these things? And you ultimately just get through it. You know, I, I think it, it, for me, Having the kids brought a sense of purpose. Yeah. It allowed me to see there is a world bigger than my own kind of selfish needs and desires. And then to create value for the family was much more fulfilling for me than just making money myself so I can go on a vacation. That said, I do very much look forward to my vacation to Mexico coming up in about five weeks. Um, that should be fun. Cancun. Yeah. Can't wait. No, that's, um, where are you going? Cancun. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Taking the whole family. So it's a trip, not necessarily a vacation, but the kids, the kids love it. We go to an all inclusive. We try to go once a year as a family and just decompress. Man, that's great. We, uh, we did something actually, we did Cancun this summer and, uh, man, it was such a blast seeing our kids. Like my son was at an age where he could run around with big sister and she kind of led the way and he just tagged along and 
did whatever she wanted to do. And then he got brave, of course. Then we're having to divide and conquer <laughs> wife and I, right? But it's, uh, nah, man, you got to enjoy it and, and disconnect and decompress. And I mean, again, it was like, like I would have loved like three days vacation afterwards. It's just the wife and I, but again, it's like, we're like, they're going to be 18 at some point. They're going to move out and the wife and I are going to have a decades to fucking go on vacation together. So it's like, at the time I'm like, Oh, it'd sure be nice if it was just you and I, I'm like, dude, snap out of it, man. Don't be such a selfish little bitch. Like this is, you're going to have time. <laughs> like God, like I struggle with that all the time. Man. I love it. I love it. <laughs> what, what prompted you to start podcasting? Man. So it's, uh, I, I I've always been, I've always had such a high degree of curiosity. Right. And so I, there was a point where I wanted to start a gym because that's a passion of mine. Like if I wasn't in oil and gas, I would be something in the health and fitness sports performance okay. space. And so I always, I always like, that was always my vocation. I wanted to open up a gym and there was a group out of Memphis called Barbell Shrugged. And they're a group of CrossFitters who started a gym and they started a podcast back in like 2012 or 13 mm-hmm. that they basically, every episode was a segment into how do you start a gym? What systems do you use? What tech stack do you use? How do you gain members? And so it was almost like they developed a playbook to start a gym. So then, so I listened to that for like year, like however long. And then I, and then I was like, this podcasting thing's crazy. I'm like, there's like, I would pay for this information, but these dudes are out there. And then I realized I'm like, oh, they're actually selling something on the side, but they're using this as a platform. And so I just thought it was like such an interesting platform. And then I was like, well, if they're talking about like like health and fitness and opening up a gym, I'm like, I spend so much time driving and listening to shit. I'm like, surely someone has a podcast on like oil and gas stuff. (laughs) And uh, so, of course, I type in oil and gas and lo and behold, Mark LaCour's oil and gas this week, OGGN pops up. I'm like, I'll subscribe to that. He was like the only one at that point, right? For so long, like for probably two or three years he was. So anyway, I started listening to him and then... uh, and then I was like, man, I could do this podcasting thing. Like I love BSing with the boys and, and whoever. Yeah. And I was like, I could, I could do this. Like it'd be fun. Um, and so then there was an opportunity when Jake was still there, he had mentioned on one of the episodes that they were looking for sponsors for happy hours. So I reached out to Jake. I was like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm a young dude in oil and gas. I think I'd be like, I'd really love to, you know, be a part of this OGGN thing you're doing. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to sponsor a happy hour. Well, they didn't have any room available for that because they had already booked it up. Well, then I met with Mark and Jake because um, they were looking for sponsors for another podcast. And at the time, my employer was like, we're not spending that kind of money on a podcast. Are you kidding me? Right. And then Mark, you know, after that meeting happened, we had lunch and he was like, dude, he's like, I think you'd be a great podcast host. Would you ever want to do a podcast? And I was like, dude, yes. Like I want to so bad, but I have no idea what to do. He's like, okay. yeah, how do I do it? Yeah. I was like, give me a microphone and I can freaking give her. But I was like, I don't know how to do it and put it online and all that. And he's like, we got you. Like you just figure out what you want to talk wow. about and we'll get you the equipment and we'll like, it'll be plug and play and you just record and then leave the rest up to us. And I was like, sweet. And then, so that's how that started. And then the rest is history. That started in 2018, January 2018, I think. Uh, so you were early. Pretty for oil and gas podcasting, you were pretty early. And you've yeah. done, what, hundreds of episodes now? Yeah. So I'm on like 70, almost 80 for Wicked Energy. I think nice. I did 100 and 
40 or 50 for OGGN. Then we're at over 200 with the flow line, which is the one I do for the A for AES drilling. Oh my God. So you've done like 350 podcasts. I think I tallied it up. I'm, I'm over 400 episodes recorded. Yeah. Dude, they're going to retire your jersey in the oil and gas podcast. And call it I don't know, man. There's <laughs> there's so many other good ones out there. And it's funny because like you would think that if I've been doing it for this long, like I'd have like thousands of downloads and like millions of impressions. But it's like, dude, it is a grind. Like, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I don't even like I don't even look at the downloads anymore because I'm like, I don't either. you know, it's, it's just it's it's not that it's discouraging, but it's we're in such a niche in ecosystem that unless you're like spending marketing time and effort and dollars to pump out the podcast, right? It's, it's, it's hard to scale, but you know what? I'm totally cool with that. Like I'm going to do this for the rest of my career. So whether I have a hundred downloads an episode or I get a thousand at this point, I don't really care because I'm putting out good content. I'm having good conversations and it's people are listening to it and hopefully learning something. So it's like, whether it's two people or 200, I don't really give a shit. Somebody, yeah, all you need is a few people to get value out of it. You know, yeah. every once in a while on these podcasts, will be like, I don't know who listens to this. And almost uh, like yeah. clockwork, three or four people reach out like, dude, I listened to it. I listened to all your episodes. Well, like, dude, what? so perfect example, right? Like it's about providing value, right? Yeah. So I had um, a dude on from Donovan Ventures. He was, yeah. uh, and, and his name is Jordan Stone, young kid, super sharp, man. Grew up in the, like around Shreveport, I think. So he was like very exposed to the Haynesville, but just like, just, just an overall, like, he's just a great guy. And he's like 20 some years old. Um, he's big in the EFT space too, which is cool. Right. And so, yeah. Anyway, I had him on and he sent me a text message. He's like, dude, like, thanks again for having me on the podcast. I've had so many inbounds that like, I couldn't thank you enough for this. I'm like, I don't even know what those inbounds did for you, but like, I'm so happy to hear that. So like, to me, that was a win. Cause honestly, I didn't know if the, the, like the, the episode was that great. You know, it's kind of hard to judge. Yeah. Off of, like, cause like, how do you judge it based off of downloads? I don't know. Like, I, I guess. guess, but I guess, but at the end of the day is like, he found like he got something out of it. And I was like, fuck yeah. Like that to me is the best thing in the world. Yeah. I mean, all you got to do now is ask for 20% of whatever revenue comes from those inbounds for him and you got yourself <laughs> a real business. Now, man. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's fun, man. Like I, I used true, to, right? like, yeah, show me the bag, bro. Come on, man. When do I when do I get an advisory seat at, at Donovan Ventures? Dude, I think that Tim and I, especially the first, like, I don't know, 65, 70 episodes, we used to pour over the stats. Like, how many downloads did this episode get? We'd check a day or two after the, the podcast came out. And then we'd check and look back. How did this affect previous recordings? Because when somebody new comes in, like, you're going to bring some of your audience now to What the Funk people are going to start going back and listening to some old episodes, right? Yeah. That's the beauty of podcasting. It's sort of the gift that keeps on giving content wise. Yeah. So Tim and I would, would pour over it. And I remember I was about 50, maybe 60 episodes in and I had two of my best friends over my house and they're like, so podcasting, like, is that going well for you? And I was like, yeah, it's cool. And I said this with like no hint of ego. I was just casually like, yeah, I mean, we've got like 30,000 downloads. And they're like, you fucking serious? And like, <laughs> Yeah, what is that a lot? And they're like, that's crazy. I'm like, oh, I did like compared to Chuck Yates, that's like 10% of what he gets. And they're like, dude, you've got 30,000 downloads of people listening to your stuff. I'm like, 
well, and that's not totally an accurate number because it might not capture views. Those are just on Spotify, blah, blah, blah. Right. So it's just subscribers. It, it wasn't like as uh, clean of an art to mathematically track all these downloads. But dude, Chuck's episode on tripping over the barrel must have done. I don't know, 3,500 downloads or something like that. And nice. that was like, that skewed the rest of the numbers. For the most yeah. part, it would be somewhere between like 400 and 600 downloads, which I still thought was incredible. Dude, and that's I just, really good. Really good. I haven't checked what the funk at all. Like, I honestly have no idea how many downloads and I just don't care anymore. It's it's I do this because I really enjoy the camaraderie and talking to the guests. And if somebody yeah. gets value out of it, then they get value. And I, I've talked to my good friend, Stephen Hatcher. He's, he's kind of building a new persona for himself out there as minerals guy Sweet. Um, in the oil and gas space. And he was a little bit hesitant to build his brand and, and start putting content out there. Why? And, yeah, right. But see, you and I think like that. But for him, it was just such a big leap of faith because he didn't have a big online presence. He didn't have a brand. Then he's sort mm. of like, but what if it fails? And I go, but what if it doesn't? Right? <laughs> right. What, yeah, I know. What, if, yeah. what if 15 people listen to one of your podcasts or, or click on one of your posts and two or three people come to you and you get business from it? Wouldn't that be a success? Even if only a meager 15 people listen to your podcast or whatever? Like, isn't it about the value you could get? He's like, oh, I didn't think about it like that. See, I think people want to get into this and think like, this is going to be a grand slam. And it's yeah. like, you know what, dude? Like a bunt single when it comes to content might work too. Dude, that's right. I mean, I, I'm so... It's funny that you say that. Like some episodes, uh, like for instance... I had Doomberg. I don't know who you, if you're familiar with Doomberg. I mean, I feel like I've seen him on Twitter he, maybe. Yeah, he's got like... So him and his team, he's the green chicken and he's got the biggest, or I say the biggest, depending on how you measure it. But I think he's got the most downloaded and highest revenue generating Substack in finance and economics. Like, nice. like he, he holds that top place. Well, I had him on and uh, my YouTube the episode, the YouTube got like thir almost 13,000 views, which is like, that's a lot dude on YouTube. That's crazy. Yeah. Like it had got like quadrillion more, more than like most of them get like anywhere from like 50 to 80. Like that's, I'm kind of like right. in that range. Totally. Um, some of my YouTube shorts do well because I'm goofy and they probably, it's like clickbait stuff. But anyway, cool. so I say that to say is like, like I look at that and I'm like, like someone could easily be like, okay, well that's the benchmark. Like I need to see if I can get 12,000 views on YouTube every time. It's like the reality is it's not going to happen. And so yeah, I, I try not to get caught up. But here, but the thing is, too, is I think it's important to at least track it and have if you have if you if you're fortunate to have a team that can at yeah. least compile it and not really worry about the metrics themselves, but look at the trends and be like, okay, because like I have, you know, I've, I'm finally in a position I have a little marketing team helping me and they give me uh, a monthly update and they put like a little deck together on like what was the top episode and what was this and what was that and it's a lot of this stuff is kind of eye-opening and it's like oh cool like that worked that's good but it doesn't necessarily they're not necessarily putting like well here's how many downloads you've had but it's like you know percent increase decrease and whether or not like <laughs> it's growing and and overall like the ship is heading in the right direction but it's so slow like i was talking to i actually had peter perry on my podcast uh before this and he's He's branding himself as the climate banker. He's an investment banker, okay. lives in Juniper, uh, Florida. 
<clears throat> which I didn't realize is like has a lot of big energy folks in there. Like next Terra's like right there. But anyway, he's been okay. like in in energy. He's been an investment banker for a long time. He's always played in the like sort of the climate space, but also recognizes like the value of oil and gas. And we were talking about like how challenging it is to raise capital right now, just due to like you know there's some biases around like renewable energy and with interest rates so high and the IRRs are so low. And so like we had a really good conversation about like energy finance and banking and stuff but yeah he was saying is like you have to be willing like the short-term bag nowadays is like few and far between it's like i'm looking for people who want to like invest for like you know five eight ten twelve years you have to play the long game especially yeah. when it comes to the energy transition and investing in all these like low carbon projects and so looking at like you know two months worth of downloads like you got to be in this for the long run because in the end something will happen but there was something else oh this reminds me you, you know the energy drink celsius yeah okay so fascinating story about them oh, the last like few years their stock surged like four thousand percent and i didn't realize they've been a company or they've been around for like 20 something years like before like the pandemic i don't even know like if celsius existed but I guess Coca-Cola changed their supply chain. And so they had to start distributing Monster in a different way, which opened up a lot of the um, a lot of the spaces inside of gas stations and all these places that sell energy drinks with the fridges. Like it opened up like a massive space. And Celsius was basically at the door being like, well, we'll take that space. Sure. And then they freaking blew up, but they've been around for 20 years. And they, they're like a mom and pop shop. And all of a sudden now nice. they're like, they're worth like three lifts or something like that. Like it's insane. So you, you got to be willing to, to fucking hold your breath. You know what I mean? It's so against our nature as human beings though, because we're all chasing that short-term win, right? We want that <laughs> dopamine spike where we can get it and thinking long-term is, is difficult. You know, I have a number of projects. Funk Futures is completely bootstrapped, self-funded, but I have some technology companies that, that are on the side that are starting to grow a little bit. And I'll, I'll, I'll start talking about them more when they're ready. But, yeah, but bro. those, you know, those have investors. And to me, like I wake up every day with this guilt that I haven't returned their money to them. Mm. And I think that these investors go into it with the mindset of, well, this is like a longer term play. And generally they're a little bit older. They've had some wins. They've had some losses. They, they understand the investment game, but they'll probably win in the long run because they have somebody like me stressing about not creating a return <laughs> six months yeah. into the investment. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's crazy for me to see. And I, I think that it's just, you know, the mindset of the investor that can look 10 to 12 years down the road is advantageous compared to somebody that wants a return in two months. It's just not realistic. Mm. No, it's so true, man. It's like I always say is like, whoever can eat the most shit ends up eating the most caviar. You got to yeah. be willing to just grind it out, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, another, another one of my friends who's a, who's an entrepreneur said it, it, along similar lines, he's like, you know, running your own business is basically an exercise in how much shit you can eat in any <laughs> given day and then waking up again the next day and doing it again. I'm like, yeah, that, that's kind of some summarizes my life. But, I'm curious on your thought, like <clears throat> kind of going back to the original part of the conversation was like, I grew up and I was, I felt ashamed growing up in an entrepreneurial family. Hmm. Like, again, I was like, I felt like I was a second class citizen because my parents, like we were, we had our own storefront in a mall and like, 
you know, they didn't work for some fancy company and were like corporate suit shit, right? Well, then fast forward to like, I don't know, call it the last 10 years, like hustle culture came along. Yeah. Then like entrepreneurship became like glorified. And now everyone, I say everyone, there's consent. Like when you look at it, it's like entrepreneurship is like kind of like everyone's th- like, I want to just start my own thing. I want to start my own business. I want to have a side yeah. hustle. Whereas like, you know, now it's like if, if, if you grew up in a family where like your parents are working from home and they got multiple businesses and they get to make their own schedule and all this stuff, it's cool. But a lot of money has been lost. A lot of people have yeah. failed. Do you see the pendulum swinging back to where people are going to be like, you know what? Like this entrepreneurship's whack. Like I'm going to go back to working a W2. Like, do you think it'll be sexy again to go work for a cool corporate company? Yes, I do. Are you seeing that or are you saying that it's going to happen? I, I'm not seeing it yet. I think people still want to figure it out for themselves. And also, I think the pandemic changed this a little bit with people yeah. um, all of a sudden working from home and, and developing this level of like freedom and time and autonomy to think that you could just run a side business. But as people start getting back in the office, assuming that's a thing, I think that dream will will die a little bit. But dude, there, there's a lot of um, a lot that goes into running and starting your own thing. And I don't sleep particularly well at night. That there's not a great deal of security. You can get fired at at any time by your clients. You're yeah. constantly hustling. You're stressing. I see this with friends uh, who who are also entrepreneurs. Like you tend to hear about the successes. How come we don't hear about the failures, right? Yeah. So I, I think that the idea of having the security of a W two and a four hundred one k and good health insurance. That allure will start to come back when people realize just how much of a grind it actually is to maintain something over the long term. Yeah. Yeah. Because the reality is, is like, while people might have entrepreneurial tendencies, which can be applied in a company like mine, sure. you know, I've yeah. been able to do. Um, yeah. The reality is, is like not everyone can run a business. And, 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 and for so long, like access to capital was so easy. There's so much cheap money out there. Yeah. Like. I think the next five years, you're going to really see like, who is the entrepreneur that like can actually make this shit work or who is the one out there that could just get access to money and make it work. And then like, are still somehow scraping by, like, I think it's, I think you're going to see the landscape shift a little bit, but I think in all good reasons, right. Sometimes it like markets need to purge a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, Yeah. I mean, there's there's also sort of the fundamental as money becomes harder to obtain on the investment side of things as interest rates go up and the VC markets tighten, um, who's going to be able to actually branch out and go off on their own? Well, fundamentally, it's people who have money already. Okay. So then mm-hmm. the American dream starts to die a little bit because you don't get some of these smaller companies be able to take an SBA loan at 5% mm-hmm. and be able to put up their corner store that actually creates value and allows them to pay back that loan. So mm. it's going to be fascinating to watch. And it's sort of the same thing with, um, with real estate, which you're seeing too. Like, okay, the, the housing prices are decreasing at least a tiny bit and interest rates go up. I don't understand how people that are buying houses right now can afford it. You put a ton of money down and then all of a sudden your mortgage is seven, $8,000 a month. Dude, it's crazy. Ooh. Well, okay, <clears throat> good point. But there's there's always going to be buyers and there's always going to be sellers. I think what, you, what people were buying 
five years ago looks totally different than now. Like my brother-in-law is a perfect example. Five years ago, he could have bought a nice place out here in Katy for, I don't know, call it 400 and some thousand dollars. And it would have been probably, you know, a beautiful, nice new home, whatever. Yeah. Um, but now while he's still, actually they just closed on it. What he can afford relative to like the house he could afford then now relative to the house he can afford now, like he's having to accept the fact that he's going to live in a different area mm. and he's going to live in a much smaller home. And so I think, people are getting a little eating a little bit of humble pie and it's like i think this this shift of what like who's buying what is just shifting but there's always gonna be people who can buy the high-end homes there's always gonna be people who can buy the low-end homes but now someone coming out of college is probably gonna have to buy a one-bedroom place in the third ward versus like five years ago they might have been able to buy a three-bedroom house out here in katie insane you know what i mean so i I think it's it's you got to kind of look at that too and i think the whole like home ownership game is, is changing. Like I think a lot more people now are just going to suck it up and rent and be like, yeah. why would I dump a bunch of money into this home when I could just rent and still have, and then I could invest whatever I have instead of putting 50 or a hundred thousand dollars on a home, yeah. I'm going to put that in something else. Maybe I'll be conservative and put it in the S and P or whatever. So yeah. I think people are just like shifting the way they, they allocate their capital. Um, but again, it's super, super fascinating. I wish like, the, I mean, when you look at the trends of like what houses like people with X income, what what was like the medium home price that they were buying pre-pandemic and what were, what's the median home price they're buying post-pandemic? And I guarantee you'd see like a drastic change. 100%. 100%. Which is interesting if you're a data guy. If you don't, you're like, what the hell? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> well, macro trends are, are important too. They are. It's um, good to watch, right? It's good to watch. No doubt. Well, look, I got to put a pin in this. This is a ton of fun. I'm already over. This is like the story of my life. Everything's like five minutes over. I, go <laughs> no, I, I feel bad. Sorry. I've been babbling about all kinds of I, random stuff. Are you kidding me? This is like the highlight of my week. Um, <laughs> but Justin, where do people find you? Where do they find your podcast? Where do they find everything on? Yeah. Mr. So Get- hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, if you search on Spotify or wherever you find your podcast, Wicked Energy with JG. Um, and then on LinkedIn, Justin Gauthier, G-A-U-T-H-I-R. Um, yeah, hit me up on there. LinkedIn's kind of the hub. That's where I play. Um, that's the town square. And then the podcast you can find anywhere else. Um, beyond that, if, if you're in oil and gas in the upstream space, uh, look up AES Drilling Fluids. we got a great page. Um, you know, we're, one of the, we're the leading drilling fluids provider in the United States uh, mm. for land. And so a uh, big shout out to AES. Um, greatest mud company in the world. So uh, look them up too if you play in the drilling world. The greatest mud company in the world. Yeah, and I have data to prove it. Yeah, so in your face, all you other <laughs> mud poser companies. Yeah, man, I, I appreciate you very much. Uh, you've you've been there for me. You've always been a great ear. Um, I've enjoyed getting to know you, our, our friendship flourishing. and Likewise, um, man. Thank you. I'm, I'm a fan. I appreciate everything you've done for the podcasting space, for the industry. Um, for your own business, for my business, for your family. Let's keep doing this, man. Let's check in every once in a while. It's always an honor to uh, spend time with you, my brother. Awesome, man. And then for all the listeners, and I appreciate all the support that you've given Jeremy over the years. Um, Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you've listened to the end, I mean, kudos to you, but uh, I want to give you a big shout out, man. You're crushing it. You got a lot going on and you're still podcasting. You're, uh, I mean, yeah, you're, you're, you're impacting others, man. That's the God's greatest gift, right? So thank you for everything you do, brother.